Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the UBC of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing great, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Children and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of our guests. Today, we have an episode for you on interacting with industry. So this is a controversial topic. But I think every orthopedic surgeon would agree that having excellent instruments and implants is crucial for our ability to care for patients. And certainly we as surgeons do not have the time or expertise to create these. And industry relies upon us and we rely on them. We rely on them to create implants and instruments properly. And um, we're dependent on one another. So where this gets controversial is as surgeons, when we act as consultants for industry, this can create financial conflicts of interest. I don't think it makes sense for surgeons to give their time or intellectual property away for free to a for-profit company, but certainly our implants will be better if we're involved. So there's a balance here. So to talk about how we can best strike this balance, we've invited two nationally recognized shoulder surgeons onto this podcast. First, we have Dr. Howard Routman of Atlanta Orthopedics in Florida. Howard, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. I'm doing great. Nice to hear your voices. Well, we're excited to have you on. And next, we have Dr. Eric Wagner of Emory University in Atlanta. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Pete. Thanks, Rachel. This is this is fun. I can't wait. All right. So I wanted to talk for a second first. You know, there's a couple of different ways that surgeons consult for industry. And I wanted to try and give a review of kind of the different levels of involvement. So Eric, maybe you could go through with us kind of the voice of consumer, medical education, in-house design, selling established property, intellectual property. Tell us about kind of the different levels of involvement that surgeons take with industry. Yeah, no, that, that's a, a good introduction to this. You know, I think um, the, uh, the the relationship spans sort of everything you kind of talked about. So um, surgeons can be involved with industry in a very um, superficial aspect. So maybe their, their institution, their practice is associated with industry and they are involved with maybe some um, some uh, industry-sponsored trials or industry-sponsored um, activities and maybe some educational activities that they put on for trainees. Um, and then, and then they personally can start getting involved, and and that uh, usually involves starting out as a consultant, where maybe you're consulting on specific um, type of projects or or specific focus area within within an industry like shoulder arthroplasty, um, and then and then from that role it can devolve from either just an educational standpoint where you are um, are invited at maybe some uh, educational courses all the way to um, consulting on various types of products that they are developing. And then that sort of takes you to the next level where then you can be involved in either advisory roles or maybe even product development teams. And um, and specifically talking about certain developing certain products or, or certain directions for the company and playing an integral role in their, um, their direction and their um, development of certain implants or, or um, uh, software or anything that sort of potentially can benefit the surgeon. So, the uh, the role obviously your your association with industry and the role that you get out of it obviously varies as you go along and kind of what your goals are out of it. Um, and then and then uh, the education versus actual directly influence implant development also can change. Anything we missed, Howard? Anything you would add? Is there any levels there that we're missing here, or other thing, other thoughts you had on the subject? You know, I th I think that uh, that that covers it uh, pretty well. I think that even within the advisory or um, 
uh, implant design roles that can be even uh, concentric circles within to different organizations in which um, you can sort of graduate into as uh, as your position becomes more senior within the uh, within, within the organization you're working with, um, and you know everything on the on the on the advisory side uh, that we were talking about before, where the conflicts arise, is is basically where you're where you're being remunerated for the work that you're doing, whether it's hourly work that you're being paid as a consultant or royalty bearing uh, activity. One thing I think our listeners would love to hear from both of you is your interpretation of some of the rules and regulations that guide us and that we have to comply with. And specifically talking about the Sunshine Act, anti-kickback statute, even Star Clause potentially can get um, a little bit fuzzy with respect to industry relationships. I bet some of our young listeners, our resident and fellow listeners may be surprised to know that they have a Sunshine Act account associated with their name and they have um, financial conflicts of interest that they didn't even know about from courses that they attended m- in a mandatory fashion during residency and fellowship, but sponsored by industry. And so they have X amount of dollars associated with their name and they may say, hey, I never agreed to this or I never signed up for this. Um, I certainly was surprised when I learned about that as a resident myself. So um, Eric, can you tell us w- what is the Sunshine Act and tell us a little bit about anti-kickback statute and laws, et cetera? Yeah, no, that, that's great. And I, I can't tell you more about, uh, uh, I mean, I can't agree with you more about that. So I was just super surprised when I graduated fellowship that I, when I um, Googled myself on the Shutterton Act, um, a similar type of experience where I was like, wait, what? Like, I, I don't remember agreeing to any of this stuff. I don't remember having to report any of this. Like, I don't even remember. I mean, a couple of times I was, there, there were, there were things I, I just actually thought were education events put on by our residency or fellowship that, uh, that, actually responsive by industry and thus were reported reported by um the Sunshine Act. So no, I, I think it's uh it's it's kind of um an interesting um it's interesting and eye opening. I would encourage anybody listening to it who hasn't already done that to go do that and and to Google yourself on it's very easily accessible um through Google search and and you can find yourself as well as many many others that you sort of know. Um you know so the Sunshine Act the, or the idea of the Sunshine Act was to sort of increase transparency about these financial relationships and basically provide some sort of, of, of um, transparency for the lay public and for peers about this idea of, of financial relationships between physicians, surgeons, um, providers, and the industries, um, whether it's drug development, medical device development, anything along that time. Um, and it's sort of this, uh, this this um, it's it kind of evolved into this idea of of being um, uh, from a surgeon standpoint being sort of uh, transparent but at the same time like I think creating a sense of trust amongst between uh, the surgeons and the providers I mean and the patients of that um, hopefully through this transparency there will be sort of an obvious aspect that that, that this is not going to influence or hopefully won't influence patient care. And and uh, hopefully won't uh, influence their their own care that they're receiving. Um, at least that's the idea from from it. And and to try to avoid the idea of hey, use my implant and I'll give you this money. So this idea of this 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 kickbacks. Um, you know, I, I think it's 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 eye opening for me when I first got involved. And then now it's it's one of those things that sort of uh, I think is is does have a nice role. Um, is uh, I, I do have patients that have have looked me up on it and have referenced it, 
Um, and I do think it's, it's for the educated patients. I do, I do think it provides a nice sense of comfort about like understanding um, the different relationships your surgeons have. Um, I think where it gets misunderstood is uh, that, um, you know, the financial relationships, obviously, as surgeons, our time is relatively scarce. And so if we are going to devote it to working with industry, you know, doing it on a pro bono basis just doesn't make sense and, and is not present in any other, uh, any other industry. And I, and I do think that maybe there's a, um, there's a misunderstanding that this is when you get paid by certain companies that there's, it's like sort of still that, that old school kickback thing. It's not actually like truly consulting work. So I think there is some issues with it for the most part. I think it's, it's worked pretty well. I don't know. Howard, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that the uh, the Sunshine Act website has turned into a clearinghouse, right? Where and pretty much anything, if someone brings sandwiches to your office and it exceeds a certain um, uh, amount, next thing you know, there's a, there'll be an entry in there for something you wouldn't even weren't even aware of uh, had that even occurred. So I think it's good and probably a good idea for everyone to you know be familiar with what is associated with your name um, on on these types of websites um, and. You know, with regards to the uh, federal anti-kickback statutes, I mean, there's nothing more serious than that, right? Um, because um, you know, federal anti-kickback statute violations—that you know—that's jail time and, and 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 serious and serious activity. So um, it's really important that if you're going to be you know walking into the realm of working with industry, that you understand and that you actually hire. A, a an attorney that is familiar with uh, healthcare law, and also to make sure as best you can that you're working with ethical individuals, um, because uh, you know it's to everyone's benefit for everyone to stay above the fray in that regard. So, Howard, on yeah. that point, uh, sorry to interrupt you. At that point, um, you know, one of the things I struggled with initially was just finding an attorney or finding somebody that could give me advice on on this whole process. Like, how how did you go about doing that? I uh, we we use a a local healthcare uh, uh, attorney specialist, but I've learned some stuff recently that was truly just head scratching because there was some discussions about Stark, and uh, ends up that you know the people at the national level that specialize in Stark law, they're sort of like the people at the national level that specialize in taxes. They'll be like. Yeah, we think this is how it would be interpreted, but we're really not entirely sure. Um, so we'd advise you to take the most uh, conservative approach here and do this because um, half the time from what I've learned is that, you know, for some of these things that can be considered stark violations, there's black and white stuff, but then there's things that are like, well, we're not really clear how that would be interpreted, even though with the, like the the the, uh, the actual documentation paperwork is like thousands upon thousands of, of, of pages, and it's not a very clear document. So even the people that are the experts in in this within healthcare law firms still will um, not be able to give you clear answers. So it's really important, I think, to find someone that specializes in healthcare law in a larger firm, and then. Even within those those larger firms, they'll have people that specialize in Stark and anti kickback, um, you know, litigation and contracting, and to leverage those uh, connections to make sure that um, you stay in a very very safe position. And just so our listeners understand that the kickback statutes are pretty clear. So, for instance, if even if you design an implant and you receive a royalty from that implant, you cannot receive royalties 
from your own placement of that implant because that's a violation of the anti-kickback statute, even though you're the one who designed the implant for that company. So there are some pretty there are pr- pretty situations like that that are pretty clear. That's where you, the company can't can't pay you, yeah, for placing an implant. That's like the basic idea of the anti-kickback, but it does get complicated. I wanted so, so both even, of you like, mentioned you, you can go even, yeah. even further than that, Pete. I mean, like there's a you know there there's some. Uh, like the, the relate one of the relationships I have, if if the implant that I have designed that I have royalty bearing interest in is implanted even in a hospital that I work out of, and it's not by me, that that's also something that we don't uh, like in, in any hospital that I have privileges in, even if it's not been put in by me, that that implant uh, should not go to any type of uh, royalty bearing for me. Like you you can take it from a hand's length to an arm's length to a very clear uh, distinction. And I think that um, that's that's a really good approach to take. So I, I both think one of the things both of you mentioned is is how the Sunshine Act is really one of the, the important backs have been has been disclosure, how it's it forces industry to disclose their payments to the public. Certainly, I mean I think that's a, an important aspect of all of industry relationship is disclosure. Tell us a little bit, I mean, the main way that we use disclosure right now is through the academy. So what is your current understanding for like, how does disclosure work? Do you think that it works? What do you think, Eric? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. You know, disclosure is a, a every time, um, all of my relationships uh, with Emory, disclosure is one of the biggest things that they get caught on and, um, and, and sort of focus on, because I think that's one of the biggest areas where you can potentially get in trouble if you don't properly disclose, um, whether it's whether it's working with the industry on a research project or whether it's uh, you know consulting fees or or royalties that you're getting. Um, you know, I think it's I think I think it's tricky. I, I, I mean, I think we do a decent job with uh, a lot of recent uh, studies assessing disclosure during presentations, like at the academy or ASDS. Um, is the uh, journals do a decent job of uh, assessing. Uh, of, of requiring disclosures for various articles, um, and and I do think that allows transparency. The problem is often it's kind of buried or glossed over, and uh, and to truly find out people's disclosures, you, you have to you have to kind of dig a little bit deep, um, and and uh, so I think it's um, I, I think it's it's there. I think people realize. It. I think places like where I work at Emory. It's a it's something that I, I sort of have to go through every time I start a new contract with any company, um, and uh, and and it, and, um, and and they're pretty conservative in that respect. But it's also something that uh, even though it's like written all over the consents and all over sort of everything I do at this point, um, I still think it gets glossed over a fair amount. And 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 I I would challenge if you went and asked all my patients how many actually know these one of my disclosures, I, I bet a lot of them just sort of gloss over it. So it's kind of an interesting concept. How does it work for you, Howard? I mean, do you think disclosure, do you think this this works to to help us maintain our independence from industry? Or is this, is is it, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that it's really hard to have independence from industry, particularly if yeah. you're, if you're, you know, so if you're involved in the design of an implant, you, I'd like to think that there's a, a degree of pride associated with thinking that you designed something that's great. And uh, so then you end up having this bias um, that is partially because you've been involved in something from the ground up and you look at it and you're proud of it and you think it works really well. 
then there's that component of it. And then there's the other side of it in which you've been using it. And now you since you're, you're a surgeon, you figure out how to use that device really well to, to, to achieve your goals. So now you have bias because you know how to make it dance on the head of a pin. And there are, might be other competing products that you don't necessarily use because you figured out how to make, make the thing that you designed because you wanted it to work well for you, uh, work best for you. So there's bias all over the place when it comes to presenting to our colleagues about how we would manage different problems. I mean, the critical thing is it should really go beyond just the disclosure slide and, and, a, and a, something that you can say is on file with the academy. I think that it's important for the, an audience when we're talking about a topic that we're that we're conflicted in to really understand, you know, that, you know, it, the degree and not necessarily the degree that I'm like highly conflicted, but more along the lines of, hey, the, I'm familiar with this device. I've used it predominantly for this particular problem. And I haven't used five other devices to try to solve this problem because I know how to make this one work. So my solutions that I may be presenting are going to be based on my own experience, which is inherently uh, something that I was you know, a part of developing. So I think that when we start talking about these things from the podium, I think we have an obligation uh, to really communicate, not just here's my disclosure slide, but to actually go beyond that and actually communicate to the folks that are listening to us so that we understand where we're coming from. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. You what know, it, it's almost like the the investment in innovation. You know, it's it's an interesting point, Howard, because like you, if you develop an, let's say you're just not developing a product, but let's say you develop a surgical technique, right? And you're like, you get super invested in that because you believe it works. You you've put all the thought into it. You've done it, and then you're presenting on that. You have the same sort of bias that you do about these products that you is similarly like working with the industry gives you this amazing opportunity to like participate in really cool innovation that like outside of very unique circumstances, you never actually really have that opportunity to do. And so, you know, it's interesting because the bias is probably more so what Howard's saying, not actually just because you're getting, you get some consulting money to to work with the industry, but it's the, the actual uh, intellectual investment that you're making on this product that you really believe in. And you've also spent all the time figuring out how to make it work. So your bias is that you're just like, I mean, you're, you're, you're intellectually and, and from professional standpoint, like very invested in this. In this sort of implant or technique and then figure out how to make it work more so than some other ones so yeah no it's an interesting interesting uh take on 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 bias with with this i've often wished that when we ask people to disclose their conflicts of interest that they would disclose whatever concepts they've also originated like yeah. if you if you first had an idea and you really believe in it you know people will ride that as far as they can yeah. I mean, I, i'm sure you both have seen this you see people yeah. that they get invested in an idea and then they they are, they have blinders on to to yeah. weaknesses within it or to to evidence against it. So I, I totally agree with you, Howard. That I mean, people the the con when we talk about conflict of interest, there's financial conflict because there's only one kind of fun. There's also intellectual, conceptual, financial conflicts of interest that people have, and I'm sure I have my own. And I I I like it's it would be helpful. Like sometimes it would be helpful to someone to say like you are too invested in this idea that you have that you are proud of, and you need to see the downsides to it you know yeah absolutely i mean and i'd actually argue that that conflict is actually probably more powerful that like professional ego whatever you want to call it intellectual is more powerful than even the financial conflicts of getting paid paid a little bit by the, these companies um 
that uh, that like people truly do get invested in these in these products or these techniques or these implants or whatever it is that they've really invested a lot of a lot of thought and energy into. Really, like like we wake up every day and we go and we treat patients. We like to think that we're doing things the best way, right? Yeah. So you know, you've worked hard to develop the technique that you currently use or the way that I currently do stuff, and we like to think that I'm doing it the best way for my patients. And yeah. um, it's sort of it, you you can get defensive um, about your own, your own way of doing things. And that does cross over sometimes. And sometimes it doesn't into yeah. the uh, conceptual stuff that he's talking about, but also into the device side of things. So it's, it's, yeah, I agree. It's more than just a financial uh, relationship. It could, it could, it could transcend all of that into I'm right. My ego is huge. And I'm going to tell you that, you know, this is the right way to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That would never happen <laughs> exactly. with orthopedic surgeons. Yeah. No, no, no. Let me talk about pediatricians. This is, this yeah. is definitely not an orthopedic surgeon's problem. <laughs> well, let's talk about the other side of the fence. So there's rules on both sides, right? There's rules for what we can do and what and what we have to disclose, and obviously what we ethically should disclose. And hopefully, everyone who's a consultant um, knows that and, and abides by that. What about from the industry side? So what rules do they have to follow? And, and for potentially some of our more seasoned surgeons, this has probably evolved over the course of their career from minimal roles 10, 20, 30 years ago to a lot of rules now um, in terms of what surge, excuse me, what the companies are able to provide on their end. So Howard, let's start with you. What's your understanding of the regulations from the industry side of things, from a compliance side of things? that perhaps our listeners may not be as familiar with? Oh, uh, you know, it, it, it seems that the, the these, these companies now uh, have, are all now run by the compliance department, right? Um, and, and, and that's a good thing, right? Because we, uh, if you have you know, lawyers that are, that are running the show, the, the, hopefully the goal is to make sure that everything is you know, extremely transparent and done according to the rules. Now, the, the rules started off as something that was largely in the uh, pharmaceutical industry. And uh, so it was things about meals, things about travel. And uh, it, you know, used to be, you know, bring the whole family. Uh, it, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go have a dinner meeting in, in Maui and talk about this new uh, chemotherapy agent. Um, and uh, it's clearly evolved a lot from that to a much more sophisticated uh, process, um, you know, spouses um, uh, are certainly, uh, you know, vigorously disallowed in, uh, in, 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 for most activities. Um, and to uh, have, if you happen to be someplace with your spouse, the, 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 the cost of, doing, of trying to make those things work out ends up being almost prohibitive. So uh, that's probably the biggest thing that a young listener would, um, you know, probably be offended that hey well I'm, I'm here with my with my spouse and i'm sure you're sure they can come to this dinner and the answer is no they they, they actually can't um and uh they'll and, and hopefully if you're working with industry they can be very clear with you about that on the front end to make this uh, a lot easier and i think that industry in, in general has gotten a lot better at it because initially these are pretty uncomfortable conversations to have uh because it's all based on relationships and uh, and ideally, you're sort of friendly with the people that you're working with, and for them to say, "Hey, listen, I, 
really enjoy your spouse's company, but they cannot be here for this. And uh, uh, that that's that's certainly one of the bigger challenges. Yeah, no, to sort of add on to that, you know, it's, it's it is interesting. Um, they the the comment about being run by the compliance. I mean, that's that's like spot on. It's it's everything you do. There's there's you can feel that in the background, um, especially if you're paying attention. Um, and then even like just dinners or what events or whatever. I mean, the the focus around it ha has to be around sort of, or for the most part, has to be around education or some sort of, um, you know, some sort of benefit. You know, being at a place that has fellowship fellows and residents, we um, you know we we kind of are trying to help both fellows and residents learn how to interact with the industry. But from the industry standpoint, it's they have to be very careful with focusing anything that they do around that educational component and um, and not um, and not doing potentially what what traditionally used to be more of just sort of like social things or things that were like didn't have that that educational component and um, it's interesting it, you you see the uh, as Howard kind of mentioned the sometimes uh, I see residents and fellows that that don't totally understand that they don't totally Sort of get from an industry standpoint what all the regulations that they actually have and all the limitations they have in sponsoring these types of events and these types of relationships um so it, it is interesting you know how you, you've seen this evolve um can i ask where do you think how do you think it's going to continue to evolve obviously you know 2010 that's when the sunshine act came obamacare and there's a lot of um focus on this this disclosure and focus on regulations and and comes to and, and the uh um, people sort of really looking closely into this relationship and from an industry standpoint being very in, in touch with their compliance. Is, is this a case of us swinging in one direction? Do you think it's going to come back or do you, where do you think the future holds in like 10 years from now? I think that we're at an extreme of the pendulum right now. I was, I was just at a, a meeting where um, there was a presentation in the middle of a, of a of an academic session where the whole thing was CME uh, accredited, and because uh, the surgeon made a mistake in his, uh, you know, the, the the speaker made a mistake in his uh, registration when he was working with the uh, academy that he put it in, they had to break and create a non CME section for that singular speaker, and his topic was something that he wasn't even even. Uh, conflicted in it was just that there was such a, a overt fear that it would cross over some line that it it it, it was it was pretty ridiculous and um uh so I, I i do think that we're at a pretty extreme uh version of it right now in terms of organizations really trying hard to make sure that they're compliant but i think that one of the challenges is that you know if if we can just create a very clear set of guidelines that uh allow for uh, I think a, a more pure disclosure, um, then I think that this is going to get easier because uh, right now um, it's, there's nothing easier than going online to the academy and clicking and updating your disclosure, right? But I do think that um, in terms of what our obligations and what we should do for our colleagues in terms of, like we were talking before about disclosing your biases, I think that as we get better at it, uh, then we can be better disseminators of information and People can also be better consumers of information, understanding where it's coming from. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I kind of agree. You know, it's it, it's interesting to see. Um, 
it, it, it is interesting to see it, it swung in the direction. Even on publications, you'll see publications where there's like error atoms and and it was like a disclosure and the disclosure had nothing to do with actual what was being published yet that that that, that still had to sort of be carried out because it was written wrong. Um, so it's, it's, it is fascinating to see how we've, how we've swung and, and being sort of younger in this process, like this is sort of the norm at this point, but I can, I can imagine that there's going to be less scrutiny as it go. Cause it really industry is like industry pushes orthopedics forward in a tremendous ways. And, and, and then our relationship with industry as surgeons helps industry really push it forward. So, I mean, it's a really symbiotic relationship that's critically important for us. Um, but I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating that I, 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 I can agree with you. And actually, Rachel and Peter, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. So, you know, you, you both kind of hinted at the idea of, of being more forthcoming with disclosure. I mean, do you think that that's, that's what's going to happen? Our role is going to be just incorporating it more commonly in, in when we present or when we talk, just having it as like, hey, not just like, like monetary disclosure, but intellectual disclosures as just part of the norm and as leaders that's kind of our role and that's how we make it sort of the pendulum swing back and back into the neutral or how, how do you, how do you, you two as also two sort of young um, all-stars in, in our field um, see, uh, see us, us changing that pendulum? I, I just want to lead with saying that Rachel's the all-star and I'm just, I'm just tagging along, but I, um, the main thing I would say is that I, I personally think that like just being more and more open with disclosure is not, it's, it's, it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily more helpful. You know what I mean? Like if you're disclosing a relationship, that's a conflict, that's really makes your work more conflicted. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make it more helpful that it's more disclosed. Um, so I, I, I think we've swung in that direction feeling like we can solve this problem with disclosure. And I personally don't, I think that the disclosure is one element, but I don't think it can be the only element, um, of the solution to this problem. When I, I am. Um, but what do you, what do you think, Rach? Well, Pete, I am by no means the rock star. You are the leader of this this team here. Um, I would say, you know, this is a difficult topic because as physicians and really as humans, but I'll just say, you know, in our career, we want to do the right thing. We never want to do anything unethical. We never want to be perceived as doing anything unethical, particularly when we're trying to do everything ethical and the perception can still be off. So I think you know, when we all go to a bunch of meetings, uh, whether they're academy or ASCS or other societies or industry meetings or little local courses, whatever it might be, and we give our talks and the second slide of every talk is always the disclosure slide. And I'm guilty of this. I stand up and I say, I have these disclosures available on the AAOS website. None of them are relevant to the content of this talk or some of them are relevant to the content of this talk, but I have no royalties bearing on, you know, what I'm about to talk about, et cetera. I would like royalties. So if any of our industry partners are listening, please sign me up. Um, but just, you know, I think, so I think we have an obligation to, for sure, when we are presenting as experts and, and the three of you guys are experts. So when you're up, I think you three and every other expert has an, and, and, and if I'm an expert myself too, we have an obligation to be up on the podium and state particularly if we're talking about a research paper and that research paper has results that are going to change the way other people practice. If that involves any sort of industry conflict, you have to disclose that. It doesn't make it bad. It doesn't make it wrong. Ideally, you're working with industry that you believe in. And so you're, so you're passionate about that kind of alluding to what we were talking about before. But the results can be perceived as conflicted, particularly if they're positive results favoring whatever implant or procedure or IP that, that is involved. So you have to disclose, not just say I have disclosures, I have disclosures relevant to this, and this is what they are. 
And then if we do that and we set the stage, I think then we're maintaining transparency and honesty. But I do think it's gone a little bit now where I just expect that to be the second slide of every podium presentation. And it honestly means nothing to me. And then I just start looking up, oh, what is Eric consulting for? And is it relevant to this talk? Or what's Howard consulting for? And is it relevant? I just start looking it up myself. And if if their conflict if your conflicts are relevant, it doesn't make it a bad talk. It just gives me a different perspective. But if you're honest and open with your disclosures up front, I think that that's more helpful. I do think we've swung a little bit too far in terms of like Pete was saying, it's not that more disclosure is necessarily best. It's appropriate disclosure. And when in doubt, just disclose. I think that's the key. So you're not perceived as hiding anything. But I, I do think, as Pete mentioned at the beginning, we, and I, I don't mean to take over this, but I do feel pretty passionate about this. We cannot function without industry and industry cannot function without us. And I never necessarily want to be putting in a product made by some engineer that's never had a surgeon's input. You know, that surgeon is critical. And, and I don't necessarily want to put in an implant that's never had an engineer's input, input because that, that perspective is also critical. So it involves a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But I think that we all have to be open and transparent and particularly with things that are relevant, if that makes sense. That leads me to the next question I wanted to ask you guys, which is that I, so both of you are people that I really respect and people that I know have also had some involvement with industry. So tell me, what are your tricks? What are your tips? What are your pearls and pitfalls for maintaining your integrity, maintaining your ethics, while also, you know, assisting industry to provide solutions that can best help our patients? What are your thoughts, Eric? Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say, I, I, uh, I, I guess I'll continue with with what Rachel was saying. I mean, working with industry, I think, is is one of the really kind of unique and 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 cool um, opportunities that you, that you have as an orthopedic surgeon, especially somebody who is trying to innovate and trying to push the field forward. Because individually, by yourself, unless you're 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 you know Paul Gramont in his garage and developing something that's going to change the world of shoulder surgery, you're you're, you're probably not going to be able to carry an idea all the way through and you probably don't have the resources to, um, and, and, and even if you do, it's the, the time and all that stuff, it's very, very difficult. And so the, with industry, you, you, you can, you can sort of partner with them in a very unique way to, to really push the field forward. And so many things that we do now that's better than we did 20 years ago is because of that relationship and is developed because of that relationship. And the future of what we do is going to change in a huge part about that relationship. Some respects with us innovating, but way even more so with, with um, industry kind of pushing it forward with their resources, with their engineers, and with us. So without question, I think it's, 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 it's a really cool. My, my tips and tricks are understand what your goals are when you work with industry. And, and I encourage physicians, surgeons, fellows, anybody who's interested in getting into that, to not make it solely about just making a little bit extra money. Because quite frankly, like if you see more patients, do more surgeries, like you're probably actually gonna make more ultimately, unless you happen to design like the most popular, you know, reverse stem that's gonna be used for 10 years. I mean, the the, the days of, 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 of surgeons making tons and tons of money with industry is just not as relevant now. And, and so, like in, in the amount of time you ultimately invest is, is it, you're not going to just, you know, like make a killing working with industry. So my, my, what I would say is identify why you're doing it, what's your motivation, and then use that as, as guiding your goals ultimately in that relationship. Um, 
because it, it can consume your time um, the, between just consulting the education or or the uh, product development. I mean, the, the the time commitment can be real, can eat into your family time, can eat into your own professional time. And it's something that you have to sort of understand what your personal goals are. And that will help you to sort of understand how to navigate the various relationships that you have. Um, but, but my experience has been that it's, it's for the most part been extremely positive, very fun working with people you would normally wouldn't work with like engineers and people have a totally different perspective on stuff that think about things very differently. Um, and it gives you this really cool way to innovate, um, without, uh, like, you know, that you, that most people would not actually have. I don't know. How, how, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think that, you know, as I, I, I think about this a bit, I, I, I think that maintaining your, your integrity when working with industry and talking, talking to, uh, with people and colleagues and friends who you respect about the things that you worked on, it, it really is just an extension of your own self. Because if, uh, if, if you, you if, once you start to compromise, uh, then it's a slippery slope. It's sort of like, uh, like uh, Jack Bauer had said in 24, you know, they were probably good people to start off with, but then it's a slippery slope and they turn into bad people. Um, so I think that recognizing that on a regular day, if you do a surgery really well, it's still not a perfect surgery. Like you can always still improve. And looking at anything that you might be involved in from a design standpoint that, and ha having the humility to recognize that it's not perfect, even if you think it might be, and to be open to criticism of those and looking for the flaws in it, it allows you to not necessarily present something as being the perfect device, the perfect way of doing things. And sort of what, what Pete was saying before about, you know, recognition internally of your own, um, you know, humility about the way that you present things, I think is the right way to go about this. Now, you can be uh, feeling very strongly that you've done something great, but there's no device is perfect and, and no, no concept is without flaw. Um, and I think that if you take that approach to what you're working with with industry, then it allows you to be able to be on the receiving end of criticism without actually necessarily be feeling that, you know, need to be defensive about it. Um, so it's tough because, you know, some of the ways that we uh, work our way through some of these educational programs to set up these battle royales of, you know, defend your concept. And um, uh, I, I think that it's, it's, it's bad theater to have someone say, Hey, you know what? Uh, my way is not perfect, but it works for me. And have, cause that's not what you really, you're, you're there to basically decimate your opponent in the debate. Uh, but in, in reality, we don't have the perfect answer all the time. And I think that if you take that into the room, uh, it allows you to maintain uh, your integrity in that relationship. I think the other piece that uh, it's it may be important we mention here is that it's critical as surgeons that we always are honest with our outcomes. I mean, I think, you know, like I, I certainly I think there are times where people they they want something to be true, and so there's I mean there's a, there's actually a lot of there's actually a lot of literature about you know people unconsciously changing their outcomes maybe, but I think there are there are there are examples where people have been honest. Like I think a good example is Frankel. You know, like I think you can look at Frankel's outcomes that he's published his ten year study, and he he took so many so many. He went to such great lengths, like with the range of motion, to collect it in a way that it was very very standardized and very very hard for him to change. You know, he took videos. And he measured, had someone else measure the videos, and 
et cetera, et cetera. And I think is that's the critical thing is that we have to be as honest as possible with our outcomes and then have a relationship with industry where we say to them, when we publish or we stand on the podium, we're going to say what actually happened. You know, we're going to say, we did 30 of these and 27 of them worked and three of the patients had these complications that may or may not have been related to the implant. Maybe it was related to my method of placement of the implant. But that, to me, that's the critical thing that that's when I say that I think disclosure is not enough. This is what I mean, that I think we also have to maintain the ability to say what we think is true and have it not affect our relationship with industry. Yeah, no, no I agree. And especially, Peter, when you when you think about um, like working with industry on on sponsored trials, right, and, and, and doing uh, research because the sponsored trials are, are a very powerful way to allow you to collect some of this data that maybe you don't have the resources to collect on your own. But at the same time, like being able to sort of be honest with that is it, it becomes even more challenging because obviously there's there's a financial sponsor with this. And so, yeah, you know, it is it is interesting. Okay, Howard, how do you how do you deal with that? So you're part of a sponsored trial um, and, and, and there's a huge value in industry sponsoring certain trials and certain certain ways, because quite frankly, without it, we wouldn't be able to actually do some of these trials and some of these really, really important get some of the some really important multi center data. Um, how do you balance that, uh, that almost like unconscious need to want it to do well with, with, uh, with, with, um, you know, with, with, with being part of these trials? I, th I think that the, by remaining curious and uh, by trying to not just see the way things can work, but to also see the way they can fail as being the, uh, the goal of the, the project. Um, because if your goal is to, if, if the outset, the goal is to say, let, let's, let's see how good this can be, um, then you're already setting yourself down the path, right? Um, but if you, if you maintain your intellectual curiosity and try as best you can to recognize that we're, we're going forward, looking not just to see how things could uh, be successful, but what are, the, what are the unique ways that this the device or, or technique can fail? You can learn more from the failures than you can from uh, successes frequently. So, um, you know, when I talk to the, uh, you know, to the residents of the people that we're working with on, on some of these projects, uh, I frequently tell them I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in the failures than I am in the, in the, in the uh, oh, wow, they got a great result. Take out the video camera. Um, I'm more interested in like really studying the failures a lot more aggressively. Um, so they end up documenting those a lot more aggressively and, we, and try to get as much information as we can on the, out, on, the, on the negative outliers so that we can hopefully learn from that. I, yeah, isn't that fascinating? Yeah, the failures, it's, it's so interesting. The, uh, you do, you learn more from your failures and, it, and it's like unfortunate that, that there's not more of a focus on that um, in, in, our, in our literature. This is a kind of off topic, but I just, you know, so much of uh, failures and then it causes you personally to reflect and maybe change something how you do because you had these failures. Um, but then if you go publish on it, that lags behind like three years. So you're like publish on it and three years later, it actually comes out and you're like, yeah, I changed this like three or four years ago. Like this is old news, but it's new news to everybody else around. So it's just a, it's, it's, it's a, I agree. It, it's it's it, it's such a fast. That's just a fascinating topic because it's just like, without question, that's how you learn. I mean, if you see a bunch of good people and you're like, oh, this is great, you're not actually changing yourself. But when you see a bunch of failures, that's when you start really reflecting um, and really look into, wait, what what's going wrong? But then the rest of the world doesn't get that communication. Of it. It's it's 
and 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 if you're not posting like yourself, if you're not actually having people look at those, then nobody's actually finding that stuff out. So it's so it's so fascinating to see how it lags in in in, in many of our own practices. I don't know. I should tell my fellows they're very lucky to learn um, in such a fellowship such as ours with all the failures that I I produce. So um, I should say it's really a good thing. Like this is a good this is a good thing. I'm doing it for you, um, for the yeah. fellow. So I'll tomorrow. I'll maximum fellow benefit. Yes, maximum fellow benefit. <laughs> Let me ask you guys a little bit of a, a sticky question, uh, maybe, um, and I, I think we can all potentially relate to this. So say there's a surgeon presenting on the podium uh, about a research paper that he or she has published based on their own cohort of patients or their group's cohort of patients, whatever it might be. And that, that person presenting has a known relationship with industry and is presenting on a topic related to that relationship. They've disclosed it. It's public. They're not hiding it. But you know, you, I'm sure you can think of a surgeon right now that you've seen up on the podium talking about their reverse implants and their outcomes. And, and maybe that's not the implant you use. Perhaps that's an implant you think is inferior. Does the fact that they have a conflict and they're presenting on a, on a topic that you, that you perform, that you do, but with a different implant, does that bias your uh, interpretation of their podium presentation and, and of their future manuscript? And at the same time, if it's an implant that you do use, say you even consult for the same company, does that bias you? So you hear the same paper, but you think, oh yeah, those results are great. I, I can replicate those results with that implant. Or same paper, same person's presenting, and, and but it's not what you use. And you say, no way. There's no way that's real. That person's a consultant. They're just presenting biased data. There's no way. And it's the same paper being presented, but two different people in the audience are perceiving it differently. Tell us, does that, do you guys find that that happens? Do you worry about that when you're presenting? How should our listeners approach prolific researchers on the podium presenting on data in which they have a conflict? Eric, let's start with you. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, that that's bad. It's the whole idea of unconscious bias. And whether you're, you actually are conscious about it or not, I mean, it's 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 real in everything we do, not just research. But that, I mean, without question, I, I see that all the time. And maybe it's not just an implant or coming, but maybe it's just a technique that, like, I personally have not had success with, or or am not as familiar with, maybe. And and you have this sort of immediate. You see the title, you see the presentation. You're like, all right, like I, I this immediate bias against or for it. Um, and it and it and it's very tricky, and I think it takes somebody who's very insightful to to recognize that and to try to open your mind and and not have that bias, especially as surgeons, because you know you have ten surgeons in a room, you have ten different opinions on how to actually do the surgery, and so like you're 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 without question going to like as a surgeon or a big surgeon who thinks that they are doing the best thing for the patients, you have this bias that going in. So I, I think especially with 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 your relationship with the industry, you know, it, you're going to have that bias either against or for who's presenting. I think it, I think it is important, and that, that's the I guess the whole theme maybe of this episode is that we like, you know, understanding bias, understanding this like disclosure idea, and making it part of not only your conscious thought but also maybe part of the conversations when you ask questions and do discussions. I, I think that's I think that's the, that's kind of the relevant thing to how we kind of move forward with these relations, these really critical relationships that we have and how we also move forward interpreting data. Cause you know, a lot of, a lot of people who are, who are leaders in our field, you know, they are, they're almost like in charge of like distilling this data and, and allowing everybody else to sort of like guiding them what's, what's the right direction. And, and, and there's so many different articles that are coming out and we have so many different journals, even JSDS now it's all these different journals and, 
you know, many of the other ones do as well. And so there's so much data and trying to distill that all and recognize your own, your own conscious bias and the author's conscious bias is, is very tricky. But I think as we, as you, as you evolve this more and more in our conversations and our discussions after papers and, you know, just part of like the discussion of, Hey, there is this bias. Hey, maybe it's relevant. Maybe it's not. And, you know, talking about it and, 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 and identify, I think that's, I think that's, that's like really how we, how hopefully the future will hold that we kind of move forward with this. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Howard, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think, you know, Rachel, I think that it always feels good when someone agrees with you, you know? So if, uh, if someone's standing on the podium and presenting something that, 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 that you are, that you're saying, yes, that's how I feel too. Um, you know, and, and frequently that's going to be uh, something from a philosophical uh, level that you uh, have already thought about beforehand. Uh, yeah, when, 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 I, when I think of this, this topic, I think of the battle between uh, Buzz and JP on the biologic resurfacing of the glenoid. Um, when Buzz had this beautiful paper, it showed he had great results. And then JP did a similar study and they had terrible results. And Buzz's, Buzz's response is, that's fine. If you have this problem, just don't go to Boston. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, so like if you're attached emotionally to, uh, you know, to something that you really feel is, 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 is effective, uh, it, it can hurt your feelings to have someone say that, 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 that doesn't work. Um, and I think that, you know, probably been more proper to say there's probably some nuances that Buzz is doing that JP wasn't. And it's, it's impossible for, for someone to watch, you know, to, to like go back to Frankel, to watch Mark Frankel present a, a topic. And it's impossible for him to actually impart all the nuanced things that he did um, in that operation that made it, that made it a Frankel operation because he's a master, right? Um, and you can only present so much of it when you're doing it. And we sort of, you know, simplify and dumb down things into into microscopic topics that are easily definable when it's when it's actually a much bigger picture that needs to be painted. Um, so you know, the other side of it is, you know. To what we were talking about before, I think that great surgeons can get great results with the with, with what they're most comfortable with and what they're most frequently utilizing. Um, like if you have a really, really, really challenging case coming up, you're going to use the stuff that you're most familiar with to uh, to do that case, uh, even if there might be something else out there that, that could potentially um, you know be helpful to you. You're probably going to want to use it on an easier thing before you start to expand into the 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 cavern of a terrible case. Um, so I definitely uh, suffer from the same bias that you're referring to. If someone gets up and says something nice about um, nice about me, I'll, I'll, I, I like that if they say something uh, that I disagree with uh, philosophically, I, I tend to uh, give it less credence. You know, I've always wanted to go um, to go to some industry session for whatever industry it might be and give a talk about implant A or technique A and present, you know, a thousand patients worth of data or a hundred patients worth of data, show no x-rays, show no arthroscopic photos, don't show what I used, but presuming I'm at that company's event speaking on behalf of that company's product and show amazing outcomes and, uh, and have everyone in the audience be like, yep, that's great. I mean, and they came to that luncheon and then say, oh, by the way, this is the implant I'm talking about and switch and show the picture and it have it be a different company's implant or technique. And just see the response because the data there speaks for itself. Um, and obviously, this this is not going to happen at an industry sponsored situation because the, you know they're going to vet the slides. But I I'd be intrigued if anyone could ever pull off a study like that 
because of because of our inherent biases. And I'm biased like like the rest of us. Um, and so I think looking at at looking at ourselves, looking at our own conflicts, our own biases is where we start, so that other people can also look at these and and really try to identify objective ways to measure outcomes and complications and and whatnot. But I just think that would be so fascinating and also yeah. potentially a little bit humbling for all of us. Um, to to be in such a session, um, but I, I'm not going to I'm not going to actually do that. That would be, you know, Rachel. The other thing that would be uh, that's uh, that would be amazing. Uh, the other thing I, I find I, that I, challenging, and I'm not exactly sure the best way to do that, but I think maybe some of the multi-center stuff that we're doing is moving in that direction. Is is how do you? So Howard mentioned, you know, expert surgeons, Mark Frankel, and some of these. Other, when you have true true masters, you 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 um, can do techniques that maybe have uh or use implants or whatever it is that that maybe um the the middle of the bell curve or even the other side of the bell curve would have issues with because you're such because these they're so technically gifted they they make it work beautifully and and they know the nuances and they know you know so many things and they can make it work like how do we as or how do in our field as leaders like help the Matt, the large mass of, of shoulder surgeons or just orthopedic surgeons in general, like decide what the the success based off of because this is a technically gifted sort of master of surgery versus like what is it, what technique is it or what implant is it that's going to be the best for the vast majority? I, I feel like that's that's a hard that's a hard topic that I I, do, I struggle with um with with answering because I, I do think so much of of the bias that we see is is maybe not as much bias. It's just these are extremely gifted surgeons that are very familiar with this area and can do a very good job with that. But maybe people who are not as familiar, who maybe are not as not at this part of the bell curve, maybe, maybe they wouldn't. But what, what what? How do we then help them to figure out what it is that they would do best with? I don't know who this directed at, but um, but I mean, whoever wants to take that. Yeah, I mean, I think. This is, you know, one of the many issues that comes into the education side and how do we, how do we best educate, you know, like every surgeon in the field, how do we come up with techniques that are, that are, that are resilient techniques that, that are, you know, more on the anti-fragile side where you there, and I think the reverse is a good example of this, where maybe there's some variation and you can still get a good outcome. Um, anyway, I mean, I, I, I think that the, Eric, you're asking the right questions and Industry, I think, needs to ask these questions, too. How do we design solutions that will work in everyone's hands? I want to thank both of you for coming on. I mean, this has been a real two to four. As I mentioned earlier, I've got a ton of respect for both of you, and I really appreciate you taking your time to talk through this topic that can be controversial, but I think you both did a beautiful job of displaying, you know, the, the pros and cons and how we can navigate our relationships to um, achieve the best results for our patients in tandem. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you very much. This is awesome. I want to echo what Pete said. Thank you both so much for coming on. That is all the time we have for today's podcast. Again, we want to thank our guests for spending so much time with us. We do want to remind our ASDS listeners that all of our disclosures and conflicts of interest are available through the Academy's website. And please feel free to pick any of our brains on any of the companies we work with. Again, thank you to our guests. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.